It was late last week, and I was trying to wrap up at work. I was frustrated, trying to get home. I kept getting retained in the office by one thing or another. And I bumped into a guy who works the next building over, someone I usually really enjoy. And we started talking, and all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a disagreement. I was irritated, and I raised my voice, and then he raised his voice. And before I knew it, we were screaming at each other. Then my wife pulls up, my daughter gets out of the car, all of a sudden I'm screaming at this other guy in front of my child, a colleague walks by, we're both screaming in front of this other colleague. Both of us are being absolutely our worst selves. I got into the car, we drove off, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it later. So it's Friday afternoon. This guy's a Jew. I don't know how Sabbath observant he is, but I realize I probably shouldn't call him until the end of Shabbat. So Saturday night, about seven o'clock, the stars are in the sky, I pick up the phone, I call him. And I say, look, before you can say a word, I just want to say, I'm really, really, really sorry. I treated you terribly. I regard you highly as a colleague. You're one of my favorite people around. And I just shouldn't have talked to you that way. And I feel terrible about myself. And I hope you can forgive me. And he paused a second. And he said, you know, after that encounter, I went home and I sat by myself on a chair for about an hour asking why I had treated you that way, because I played a part in it too. And I realized that I responded to you with such anger because I'm 65 years old and I've long wanted to retire by the time I'm 70 and I just don't know if I'm going to be able to make that work. And I had taken all of that anger and just dumped it on you and so I'm sorry. And I sat with that for a second and then I reflected on some other stuff I'd been dealing with, my anxieties that I haven't been home enough, my inability to get out of the office when I want to and we talked for about 20 more minutes and then we got off the phone and I realized I now knew him a lot better and my wife said to me, who was that on the phone? And I told her, and I told her why I called, and I explained the conversation. And she said, well, it's good that you did that. And I thought, yeah, it really was. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by the other hosts, tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. I forgive you. For what? Just everything? (laughs) Just all of it? It's a blanket forgiveness. It's that time of year. And Tablet Senior Writer, Leah Leibovitz. Emazeh, sorry. I don't know. I don't even know what sorry is. How do you say it in Hebrew? I don't think there's a word for it. Slichot. Well, that's the the prayer service. I thought that's what you say if you like... If you just want to say forgive me, I don't don't even know how how I would go about doing it. If you accidentally like punch someone in the face, don't you say... Or slicha, right? I think you just go like, uh, uh, uh get the fuck out of my way. like, instead of excuse me, you just apologize. <laughs> just apologize. The high holidays are here, and that means it is time for our annual apology episode. We are going to spend an hour, give or take, talking about atonement, teshuva, making things right, apologizing, forgiving, the ways to ring in the new year so that it will be sweeter and better and more ethically profound than the year just passed. As ever, we will be talking with our tablet colleague Marjorie Ingle, who edits the blog Sorry Watch and is one of the great experts we know on apologizing. A slichologist, if A you will. A slichologist. She will be talking about the year's best and worst apologies. Stephanie Butnick will be talking with Lauren Meckling, who is the author of a new novel about female friendship, and that brings up issues of how to make amends with your friends. And finally, we're going to bring you a very moving piece about how two women have coped with some revelations about a very, very famous Jewish figure whose legacy looks very, very different in the Me Too era. But first, as ever, a little bit about us. Stephanie, a happy early New Year to you. Thank you. I love the Jewish New Year. I feel like because I think it's always when school used to start, it to me actually marked a new year. It was it's much also more your meaningful. birthday and your anniversary. That's true. Yeah, you're kind of an autumn, an I'm a autumn real, I'm woman. I'm like a, a real hardcore Virgo. But um, yeah, to me, for me, it is literally when when things start over, begin anew. The idea of like setting resolutions for the Gregorian New Year never really sits well with me. But this seems like a real nice time to like set resolutions. You do Jewish New Year resolutions. Yeah, all about much that lunar better. life. Yeah, absolutely. The January. It's dry October, everyone. Wait, that's the resolution? No. <laughs> no tippling, no cosmos this October? No, Whole no 30, matcha. guys. <laughs> it's edible-free October for Stephanie and Ben. Only the cat will be on drugs this October in the West Village. And Liel, on the Upper West? This is a difficult time of year for me. Because I was raised in a culture. They're all really difficult for you. Had, they're all difficult <laughs> for me. This is a much more difficult than usual time for me. Because I was raised in a culture that really has very profoundly different cultural ideas about this whole forgiveness thing. We really kind of don't do it, or by which I mean to say, like, we do, we get into, like, intense conflicts, and then these conflicts just, like, blow over, and everyone's completely fine with that the next day. Frequently, they're, like, violent and they're shouting, but there's no residual anger. So the notion of, like, saying, 
I'm really sorry. There's no decorum is what I'm saying. Did your parents ever apologize to you? Oh, God, no. Or you to them? Are you kidding me? You've never said, Dad, oh. I want to tell you I'm really sorry for the way I talked to you. <laughs> if I said sorry to my father, he would have slapped me. He'd slap you and say, don't be a pussy, yeah, son. Exactly. It's like, are you a man? Mase, sorry. Did he ever Go back. apologize? Drop and give me 20. Never. Never wow. apologized for leaving you for how many years? No, the bank stuff. Some some well, years. Yeah, some years Shall to, we say. to go to prison. He was no, kind of an absentee but dad. But here's the thing. Really, this is... And, and I think I, he owes I, you one. I mean this seriously. This is what the culture is about, right? Like, American culture is fundamentally about decorum. It's about rules. It's about the sort of, like, you know, thin networks of engagement. You're making keep... me feel like such an American right now. You American. are such an... Look at you. Look at your yeah. hair. Uh, and in Israel, it's like, you're going to get into some really loud confrontation. You may punch a guy. He may punch you. And next morning, it's like, uh, Tzachi, I have a question for both of you. Does either of you, and I think Liel just answered the question for his family, does either of you come from a family where anyone gives anyone the silent treatment? Like, is, does either of you have that aunt who didn't talk to her sister for 14 years? I don't know. We don't talk about that. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. We're a pretty drama-free family. I Butniks I are know. tight also. They're not. Yeah. yeah. It's I like mean, for the 40 years you guys have been in this country, <laughs> you've been drama-free. You don't know what was happening in the old country? Drama-free since 45. Right. Just kidding. That's it's like they had all their, all their drama early on. Early on. <laughs> yeah, like, um, when they got on that boat, they said, let's just be nice to each other in the new world. I'm not like a particularly conflict-prone person. So You're in not. my personal life, like I don't have blow-ups with people. Very rarely have Do you apologize to Ben for anything? Yeah. I'm always like, I'm sorry for being so annoying. It's a general blanket. Yeah, yeah, it's like, not specific I, I, things. I'll be like, I was really annoying yesterday. I do apologize to Lisa. And it took me a long time to learn that I need to do this because in my mind, I was just being me. Mm-hmm. And You're like, like, you married reviewing, this. Right? I was just being Miley. And, you know, reviewing the, the thing uh, in my head, like playing it back like a real, I was like, oh, no, no, no. I, I was I was a major asshole. I really do an apology. But again, I don't want to blame it all on the culture. But I was just forged in this See, I have the part opposite of the world. Problem. And was like, oh. Because I find myself over apologizing. I brought this up last year, I think, and got some. Like, well, you apologize kind of pushback. for trivia. Yeah, like I'll be like, "Oh, so sorry." So, like, if I bump into someone, it's it's not excuse me, it's sorry, and that to me is like a defensive stance that I'm actually working against. And so last year, I said I was going to try to apologize less, which people didn't really like because they were like, "This time of year is for apologizing for real things." And I definitely it's not get for that. forgiving yourself. Remember that meme a few years ago? People like this year for Yom Kippur. I'm forgiving myself. I'm forgiving myself. It's like, nope. That's the ultimate not what it's, That's <laughs> not what it's about, actually. Although I will say there is something meaningful about stopping and thinking. There are some people in your life to which you owe not exactly an apology, but it's sort of a hard conversation telling them how you really feel about things that are unpleasant. I think that is really me. I'm very I'm good, if I may say so, you are. about apologizing. Right. You weirdly are. You also hold no grudges. It drives me crazy. I can't even remember grudges. Because you go up to like 11, and then you come right back down. Five minutes later. And then you're like, later. I'm really like, sorry hey, about that. you want that. a bagel? I was yeah. like... Really? I, I have no, I can't even remember grudges, which I've talked about this before in prior years, drive some people crazy because they were really sometimes wounded and I'm ready to, I'm just like, I'm really sorry I did that. Let's move on. And they're like, no, I'm not talking to you for two months. Like I need to heal. And they, for them to realize that it wasn't as big a deal to me, that this conflict was actually like me just kind of trying out a new notion on them yeah. is really hard. And I don't, I don't see that as a virtue. But, but the thing I want to say is I'm not as good at having the important conversations with people whom I'm at some sort of life impasse with. Like I have a few, I have a, a two old friends where the friendship just kind of withered and died. And if you told me I only had a month to live, I'd want to make that right. I would just want to find out like, where are we? What Are we okay? What happened? Is there a, a lasting issue there? So better, you know, if, if I know I'd want to do that, if I only had a month to live, I should do it now. And I'm just very bad at kind of reopening. I'm not sure anyone's good at that, but I'm Given that I'm a good apologizer, I'm not good at saying, but let's have a real talk. Not a good deep diver. I'm not a good deep diver because I'm basically a frivolous, superficial person. It comes from having love you. It comes from having a cheery temperament. It really does. I'm just like, "Eh." or we could just, you know, play ping pong. You know, I because I'm so conflict averse, I think I do let things my resentments boil up and like the tiny thing will just like push me into push me into a place where I say things I regret I'm just like all of a sudden like six months worth of resentment piles out and I thought I had it under control but I'll be like Mark like you know what I mean like this actually this thing that you did that you wouldn't like things set me off in a way because I think three months ago when you brought me the wrong matcha yeah thanks guys for the matcha this morning um but the other thing I've been thinking about a lot is I am 
sort of hard on myself for, for a period in my life where I feel like I was a very bad friend. And I have a, last year I talked about this, it's like the worst thing I did to one of my best, best friends in college. I apologized for her, I brought it up on the show. She's like- Oh, she didn't remember, a, right? She, no, she remembers, but she, I've apologized for it so many times and she's like, we're fine. And for another really close friend, I feel like I was just like a bad friend when we lived together. I just was like in a bad place and I have apologized so many times and I actually realized that it's not a, about, like they they have forgiven me right they they also think it's weird that I'm so sort of like stuck on this right. thing and it's actually about me right, right. at a certain point it becomes I narcissism no, no, right. but it's yeah. but it's it's me trying to work through how I was at that point in my life and almost like forgiving my not not superficially <laughs> forgiving myself but but basically saying like I no one is thinking it's about this now. anymore and right. if I keep I need to just allow this to go free so that I, I can have real friendships in this moment and not be like, oh, I'm doing this because I think five years ago I did something shitty to you. I don't want to be like that. I don't think I am. But anyway, I'm forgiving myself this year, guys. Can I tell you that I owe someone an apology that just occurred to me? Um, but it doesn't count if you do it here. But I don't even know where to find them. Okay. So there was a boy who grew up in my neighborhood, a Russian immigrant boy named Sergei. I don't know his last name. I don't know where he is now. Bryn. <laughs> and in a mansion in the sky. And he's doing just <laughs> fine. He has forgiven his you. His resentment towards you has fueled him. Different Sergei. And one time, my friends and I, I was probably 11, were playing football on the terrace on my street. I grew up on a street called Bronson Terrace, which had a big terrace in the middle that was the perfect length and width for playing like football when you're 11, right? And this boy, Sergey, was not part of the regular crew. It was like me and Derek and Adam and Jay Frogamini and Ray Pellegrini <laughs> and, uh, and Alphonse, who then moved back to Italy. But then Sergey shows up one Sunday and wants to play with us one Sunday morning. And I always felt like the small little kid on the pecking order. Most of these kids were a year or two older than I was, and and they didn't re really want Sergey there. And I basically volunteered. I just stepped up. I was like, Sergey, we don't we don't really have room for another. And there were like seven of us. Like we definitely could have used an eighth if only just to even out the teams. And I just was mean to this like immigrant kid with no friend. It was horrible. Uh, Sergey, if you're listening, Sergey, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. You get a free unorthodox book and a sticker. I think about this sometimes, and I, I think it more reflects how I grew up than the person I was. So basically, I was at Saddle Rock Elementary School in Great Neck, and I, I'm pretty sure this actually happened, and this, it didn't just like come from the recesses of my brain, but it is in there. I led a group of young girls, we were probably in like first or second grade, in a circle around the one girl who wasn't Jewish, and we all went in a circle around her singing Jewish songs. How messed up is that? Also, she was like half Jewish. <laughs> Like she wasn't even not Jewish, but I was just like, die, die. Like I, I think, think I did that. Wait, wait, wait. But think about the Jewish pride oh, that young Jews had in Great Neck. That I they know, were like, ah, that was loser, Gentile. Yeah. I mean, what a what a uh -huh, world, what a Gentile. what a shtetl you lived in. I mean, I'm horrified. I, I remembered it, and I was just like, wait, what? I did, I did what? And how also, old were you? Like kindergarten or first grade. I moved out of that school after second grade. <laughs> so I was a child. But right. anyway, maybe I always had this like pod podcaster in me. This is your. This is why we can't get any Gentiles on the show, guys. This is your repentance. Anyway, listeners, I'm sorry, Gentiles. Listeners, I didn't mean to put you down. The conversation continues. 914-570-4869 through this season of repentance. Let's, uh, next couple weeks, let's have some calls about the, the crazy things. I don't want to hear like, you know, I punched that guy in a bar fight and knocked his teeth out and feel really horrible. I don't want to hear I cheated on my wife or my husband. I don't. I don't want to hear the. I want to hear the frivolous stuff, the silly things, the catfishing, the the, the thing you do when you were in second grade. Uh, I want to hear the the stuff that's you, you don't know whether to laugh or cry, but you wish. And you Sergey, hadn't done it. if you're out there, please call. <laughs> my name is Jay Novetsky. The month prior to Rosh Hashanah is Elo, which begins this year, Sunday and Monday of Labor Day. The theme of the month of Elo is Teshuvah, which literally means returning. Returning, in this case, to offenses or sins between other people or to God. We can ask God for forgiveness any day, but offenses between us and other people can only be fixed by asking forgiveness directly to the person you've offended. The real labor of Labor Day is to begin teshuva, returning to those people for forgiveness. My father is now deceased. Ten years ago, his health was in decline and his memory was also slipping. Not just his memory was slipping, but he literally would frequently lose his balance and stumble. One day we were in the shul parking lot. My father fell getting out of the car and as I helped him up, I was frustrated and a little impatient because we would be late. Can you imagine? I thought about this lack of parental honor the entire year, but never asked for forgiveness. The following Elul, 
I asked my father, do you remember that time when you fell getting out of the car and I was impatient and not very polite? My father said, no. But dad, you have to remember, I want you to forgive me. I forgive you, but I don't remember what you're talking about. Our rabbis say that the yearning to do a mitzvah, even one that you cannot do, is precious. This year during Elul, go to those people you've offended and ask them forgiveness. Don't wait till they can't give it to you. We're pleased to welcome back tablet columnist Marjorie Ingle. Marjorie Ingle is the author of the terrific parenting book, Mama La Knows Best, and she also is the longtime co-writer of the blog SorryWatch.com. She's our in-house apology expert, and she joins us every year before Yom Kippur to talk about apologizing. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Mark. Marjorie, can we start? We do You do this every year for us, but can you just start by like recapping what makes a good apology? Give us Hit those notes for us. Okay. A good apology names what it's for. You can't just say, I apologize for what happened. You have to do the painful thing of saying the thing that you did. Uh, you have to use the words sorry or apologize rather than regret because regret is about how you feel and apology is about how you're making the other person feel. And you have to show that you understand the impact of what you did. You have to take ownership and responsibility for it. And you have to establish what you're going to do to make sure that this doesn't recur. Um, if that means making reparations, do that. If it just means, you know, committing to a new way of thinking or living that makes you not screw up, do that. So I'm really sorry I got caught doesn't not quite so much. cut it. Not Man. so much. if you were offended. The word if never belongs in an apology. I have a question that's very 2019. Um, we've just gone through a couple of years in which a lot of public figures uh, who did bad things have been caught for having done them. And um, some of them aren't interested in apologizing and, and making regrets, but some of them are. And sometimes they issue these public apologies, like to whomever I've wronged or to all my fans. And while the intention behind that is surely good, I sometimes have this feeling, you know, take a Louis C.K., for example. Why are you apologizing to me or to all your fans? Like you wronged a specific number of women. Presumably you remember who most of them are or could make a good faith effort to figure that out. Go apologize to them. They will either forgive you or help you make some sort of teshuva or reconciliation with them or they won't. And then let it be. But actually, you and I have no business together. What do you think about that? Like, what about these sort of apologizing to the 300 million people who have heard of me? You know, a public figure is a special example. They have to apologize both individually and collectively. You know, there's a reason we use the term redemption tour. You know, if these people are trying to keep their career, they're going to have to probably apologize, whether we accept that apology is another thing entirely. But the problem is when they don't actually apologize. You know, Bill Clinton never apologized to Monica Lewinsky. There was a piece in Slate about the phrase that a lot of these Me Too men have used, which is, I've reckoned with this. And no, you don't just mm. get to reckon with this. You ha it's not about you. You have to apologize to the person you've wronged. But what if it were the opposite? What if, what if the person publicly said, I acknowledge these charges against me, and I'm reaching out to the people I've wronged to apologize and left it at that. Would that suffice? Look, we are under no obligation to accept any apology. Um, the way we look at it is if you screw up, you are obligated to apologize, but nobody is obligated to accept. So I've gotten blowback from this, but I think the people who don't want to apologize because they don't think they did something wrong, I give them credit for that. You know, the reason why we can immediately tell when an apology is crappy is because we know that it's self-serving. And, mm. you know, a good example is people really want Kamala Harris to apologize for her record as a prosecutor, and she hasn't addressed it at all. And to me, that says that she owns it, and she doesn't have to. So Marjorie... Give us some of the really bad ones, the bad apologies of 5779. <laughs> a recent one was that comedian Shane Gillis, who was hired and rapidly fired by Saturday Night Live, whose apology was god-awful. I'll read it to you and you guys can analyze it. 
I'm a comedian who pushes boundaries. I sometimes miss. If you go through my 10 years of comedy, most of it bad, you're going to find a lot of bad misses. I'm happy to apologize to anyone who's actually offended by anything I've said. My intention is never to hurt anyone, but I am trying to be the best comedian I can be, and sometimes that requires risks. See, I, I thought he was absolutely spot on. Of course you did. I think by the same standard, you could go back to the entirety of like American comedy from the last 40 years and erase every single great. And basically what he was saying is, hey, man, you know, I was doing this thing that we do. And if you don't want to do this anymore, then go screw yourself. I will say this guy is not one of the greats. If you're genuinely funny, you're going to have a career. I also think that Liel is being overly casual about some of the jokes that he told. But if what he was trying to do was an apology, the world wasn't offended. Individual human beings were. And I really I, I guess I want you to talk a little bit more about that distinction. Like, wouldn't it be OK for him to say people should reach out to me privately if they were hurt? Uh, you don't put the burden on the person who was hurt. You know, we always say don't apologize to those who are offended. Apologize to everyone because you said something offensive. However, we would argue that Shane shouldn't have apologized because it's so clear he's not sorry. And when he was fired, his comment was, well, I was always a mad TV kind of guy anyway. I freaking love that. Marjorie, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you in earnest here. Look, we, we live in the <laughs> worst of times, right? We live in a time where like everybody takes offense on Twitter for some shit or another. Like it actually makes what I know, because I know you and I know what's in your heart, like the kind of very like good soulful sentiment of of trying to be a better person. But it kind of sullies that, right? Because everyone jumps up. And I think this is a little bit of what Jane Gills was trying to get at, however ineloquently. It's like everyone just rises up every second and says, I'm offended by this and this. How can we actually have a good conversation around apologies in an age where everyone is constantly being offended? I don't think people are more offended than they used to be. I think we have social media, which is a problematic medium. I'm offended by it. Yes, constantly. Um, and the reason why it's good to either get off it or take breaks from it is because it's this fire hose of fury on both the left and the right. <laughs> but that doesn't negate the basic human that hurt me um, or, oh, my God, I'm sorry that hurt you. You know, what can I do to fix it? Um, the problem is this instant reactive screaming on either the left and the right are not helpful ways to respond to things. And there's a certain amount, I will grant you, there is a certain amount of magical thinking, because I know you're thinking about the left. And there is a certain amount of magical thinking when there are pylons on the left that if I, you know, show that I am really offended by this thing and I attack, it means it'll never turn on me. And, you know, it's the same thing as like blaming uh, women who don't breastfeed and whose children get sick. Bad things happen. It's because, oh, they did the wrong thing. It could never be me. I'm protected. So can we do a blanket apology, like a lifetime of, sorry, See, everyone. that gets to my point, Marjorie. I think if he hurt a human being, he should apologize to that human being. I got a good public apology. Uh, okay. Maria Bamford, who's a comedy writer, another one. She used a term she shouldn't have used. She said, we are all immigrants, which I have said and have learned one is not supposed to say. Wait a second. That is something Franklin Roosevelt used to say, my fellow immigrants. We're not supposed to say that anymore. Maria Bamford used the phrase, we are all immigrants, which a lot of people uh, have issues with because, and I will tell you why, Native Americans are not considered immigrants and black people who came here not of their own volition. Immigrant is a funny way to describe slavery. Uh, anyway, she said, we are all immigrants. And People were like, no, do not say we are all immigrants. And she was like, oh, I get it. Um, sorry, I was on my white lady bullshit, which I think is funny. Um, here is a link to what I learned. Like, here's an article that shows why I'm not supposed to say it. And you know what? I thought that it was two lines. I thought it was great. And the world moves on. See, this is the thing is like people say when everybody yells, you're being censored. No, people just like to yell and the world keeps turning. So Marjorie, you wrote a great piece last year for this time of the year and it's called Where's My Apology? And it's basically about like, okay, we all know that we're supposed to apologize. What if we feel we're owed an apology? Can we ask for an apology? I do think that when somebody has hurt you, if you can't let it go and you're going to seize, look, tell them. Um, but know that... People's reaction to being called out is generally defensive. And I actually, when I did an apology for something really bad that I did, what which was I it? do not want to dis well. You do bad things. I do. I do terrible things. I thought, um, uh, 
You don't have to share it. Yes, you do. I'll share it. Um, one of my daughter's younger daughter's friends uh, was being mean to her on the phone, and I was yelling, "Hang up! Hang up!" And I thought she did hang up, and then I uh, she didn't, and I said, "Why do you let her treat you like such a bitch?" And um, it was bad. It was my emotions. <laughs> it was about me and not about her. The girl cried and told her mother that, you know, That's Maxie's right. mom called me a bitch. That's right. And it was hard to apologize. I don't get to say, but your kid was being mean to my kid. That's not, I mean, yes, it was true, but that is not relevant. An explanation is good backstory, but it doesn't belong in the apology. There was a study reported a few years ago where somebody looked at the important steps of a good apology and the least important one was explanation. And I would argue that that's because explanation often shades into excuse. Marjorie Ingle, you blog at starrywatch.com. You are the author of Mama Knows Best, one of the only good parenting books I think exists. And we are so grateful that you come in every year to talk apologies with us. We wish you a wonderful 5780. You too. Hi, this is Sally Zilberstein. This is my letter for the Apology Yom Kippur edition. My problem is that the people I want to apologize are no longer around. I want to apologize to my parents for the worry and angst that I put them through when I stayed in Israel during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. I understood some of what they went through when my own children were in Israel at birthright in 2014 when the kidnappings occurred and the Gaza War began. I had the luxury of being able to text, WhatsApp, or talk to them whenever I wanted. My poor parents had to wait two days before I could even get a phone call through to them. I want to apologize to my in-laws. They spoke many languages, Polish, Yiddish, German, Russian, and Hebrew, but not English. Whenever they would come to visit, I complained that it was like taking care of babies. I had to do their talking, their driving, explain everything to them in my minimal Hebrew. Plus, I had to get kosher food for them. Fast forward and my daughter is married and living in the Dominican Republic. Her husband is the only member of his family that speaks English. When I go to visit them, I am the baby who can't speak the language, won't drive a car, they drive like nuts over there, and needs to be taken care of. Lastly is my ex-husband. We were divorced 18 years when he passed away last year. I found a letter that he wrote to me near the end of our marriage, and I want to apologize and say that maybe the divorce wasn't really all his fault. Maybe I had some blame as well. May we all not wait until it is too late to apologize. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. ago, I had the chance to sit down with Lauren Meckling, author of the new novel How Could She, and Emily Stone, author of Did You Know? We talked about the female friendships that animate Lauren's novel and reflect on the challenges of maintaining our relationships throughout the year and particularly during the season of reflection and repentance. I am here with Lauren Meckling. She's the author of How Could She? And Emily Stone, the author of Did You Know? Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about How Could She? Yes. So How Could She is a novel that is about the trouble with female friendship. The beauty of female friendship comes into play as well, but it really looks at the dark underside of the dynamics and things that we find it difficult to talk about. It's a love triangle slash hate triangle about uh, concerning three women, Sunny, Geraldine, and Rachel, who all became very close very quickly when they worked together at a magazine in their early 20s. And the main, the main thread of the story finds them a little over a decade later. And they have all scattered and achieved and failed numerous things, and they're on different rungs of the ladder of life. And this is a story that really takes place over the course of the year, where they're trying to you know, reckon with their past and also make sense of all of the ways that they have um, moved out from each other's lives. It's interesting that we're gathered now because it's September, the high holidays are upon us. And, you know, it's kind of crazy that the Jewish calendar basically like bakes into the year this time of reflection, introspection, and also evaluating who we are, who we want to be, and the people in our lives. Which is sort of what friendship is all, you know, every single day of the year, right? If you think of it, there's so much. Ideally. Well, no, but for better and for worse, right. I feel like there's so much like taking stock of where things are and how things are changing and... You know, there's a lot of living inside one's head as well as living in the present moment. Something that I think Judaism manages really well is the mm -hmm. idea of the reset that happens between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and especially the idea of forgiveness and how we as Jews look at forgiveness. And I wondered if writing this book helped you come to a sense with some aspects of, friend, of your friendships that weren't working out sort of saying like, oh, and now I understand or some level yeah. of completion. Well, I think the, th I mean, the more I think about friendship and the way we hurt each other and it's so easy in real life to feel like you've been wronged or like you've wronged somebody. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there's always two sides of every story. Yes. And I mean, I think part of the Jewish tradition of thought does kind of look at duality a lot and looks at how generally both people have done something wrong and that it's really impossible to look at a dynamic that's like gone out of whack without really being honest about like accountability on both sides. Writing fiction is an exercise in empathy, an exercise in imagining yourself into somebody else's shoes. And that element of working on this book and, you know, a lot of the characters are very at least they started out very larger than life and there's an element of the spectacle about them. But as I lived with them and tried to think about them more deeply, it was hard not to feel their pain and their own traumas. And I think that's an inevitable part of being a good friend in real life, knowing that it's hard to be alive for everybody. So how has the process of writing this book and examining all of this changed who you are like, as a person and also as a friend? Are you a better friend now? No. I'm, really, <laughs> really not. I'm, um, I'm more aware of the ever-opening layers of that go into friendship. And I'm more aware of the fact that there, there is no mastery of friendship. So I'm more sensitive to it and I try harder, but I'm also more aware of my shortcomings as a friend. Book looks so much at inevitable changes that, you know, everybody's life changes all the time. And inevitably, every single friendship is going to, you know, women find themselves further apart or closer together yeah. in their circumstances. And something that I've been applying more has been talking about differences in my lives and other friends. You know, I've, it used to be hard to just say out loud, 
you've become so much more successful than I have. There was some shame in it or the opposite. That is a tough one. Right? Yeah. I mean, the dynamic is tough, but it actually, to sometimes put these things on the table Mm -hmm. and just, you know, in a loving way and just articulating that you're aware of it and that it's just this funny new reality that you're going to work through or around together, I find is incredibly strengthening for a a bond as opposed to just pretending that something hasn't changed. How do we take this away, this idea of like understanding people, empathy for their situations, and also getting out of our own heads? How do we apply that? It is hard for me to think about having those conversations with people I love and saying, you know, I am a little resentful about this thing and this, you know, or... Or it's weird to know that, or to sense very strongly that she's resentful of you for such and such a thing that you don't actually want. It's uncomfortable. I also feel like as women, we're supposed to be like, everything's fine. You're amazing. I'm amazing. Like, I'm good. Especially now, like in this moment, we're all supposed to be lifting each other up. And so there's something that's completely like, you know, illegal at this point about, you know, like hurting (laughs) each other, which we do also. Yeah. And then it just, it magnifies if you, if you push that under, like, what is the uh, 15 minute recipe to being an excellent friend? I have no idea. Maybe just even having these conversations and having this understanding in your head. And for me personally, it's been allowing my friendships space and then allowing them proximity and, and not holding things up to a standard of needing to replicate like the last amazing time and feeling I think it, one has to be open to surprises and to be a little, be more forgiving of other people in our lives for them to remain in our lives. If you use the high holidays correctly, mm-hmm. which I don't think people really do, right. because I think people go and they just sit there for that one day and they're like, oh, I lied. Oh, I was a bitch to my mother. I coveted. I coveted. Yeah. Oh, shit. And then I but I think that if you use it really correctly as a moment to really reflect and take stock and say, what was my part in it? What was my part in it? What did I really do? What was she going through? What's the thing I didn't understand about her story? Because there's always something that there, and I think that that is actually a very Jewish thing. And I think people are very obsessed with mindfulness, but they don't realize that mindfulness is actually Jewishness. And if people Mm -hmm. would really attach to the Jewishness that they've had this whole time, that's a meditation. So we would all be like better friends yeah. to, our, to and, others. Yeah, or to ourselves. So then what if maybe instead of these like ideas of apologizing, you, we go to our friends and say like, how can I be a better friend to you this year? Yes. Wouldn't that be that's, revolutionary? Yes, yes. I mean, I, we do that now when our friends are in trouble. And I think that's become this pro forma thing to say, you know. Like, how can I help you? Let me know how I can help you. I mean, I I said that to somebody yesterday and I meant it. But at the same time, I didn't actually go the extra step of figuring out how I could. On your own. Right. Not you just, you you asked, but you didn't say like, I'm going to come over and I'm going to do all the laundry. Right. Without you even having to say like, I need you to do the laundry and I need you to cook this for me or pick up my kid or whatever it is. Right. I just made it clear that I am theoretically on board to help. And I right. think there's a lot of that. And, you know, and, and today something else has happened and I've been receiving a lot of messages. Let me know how I can help. But I do think there's something wonderful about the, just the unexpected gesture of help. There's something so warm and beautiful about that. Well, thank you both for sharing so many of these things. Yeah, well, here's to a very friendly new year. Yeah. Thanks to the Jewish Book Council. You are- My name is Yitzhi Sandberg. About 25 years ago, when I was a stupid teenage punk in sleepaway camp, I said some truly horrible things to a bunkmate of mine. His parent passed away a year or two before, and he had some behavioral issues that he blamed on their death. I and another bunkmate were expelled for sneaking off campus and going to the original site of the Woodstock 25th anniversary. And while we were packing our stuff to go home, he started making rude comments to us, which I basically told him not to be jealous. When he didn't stop, I threw out a few choice Yo Mama lines to shut him up. It didn't. The next thing I knew, his hands were at my throat. I'm not hinting that maybe it was my fault. It was 100% my fault. But it didn't end there. Cut to two years later, Simchat Beit HaShoeva in Crown Heights, I run into him on the street, and he had forgotten what happened. Me, being an even bigger teenage punk, 
I asked him about the $5 he owes me. He doesn't owe me a plugged nickel, which he pays. I've not seen him since, but if I did, I would fall to my knees and beg forgiveness. Mike, if you're out there, please know that with all my neshama, I truly am sorry. Jerry Sandberg. Our listener Richard Rosengarten writes, Every week for seven years, for one or two hours, I took guitar lessons with a guy I'll call Jason. Spending that much time together, we became good friends. He was at my wedding, he knew my family, he even stayed with my parents for a few days while his house got repaired after a hurricane. Jason died in May 2011 of congestive heart failure, and he had no family that anybody knew about, no close friends who would take charge of figuring out what to do with his body, so it ended up in the custody of Miami-Dade County. The county told me they would cremate his remains after a time if no one claimed them. Now, as a Jew, the idea of cremation bothers me, and as Jason's friend, his perspective anonymous cremation by the friggin' county really bothered me. I'm a lawyer, and I have ready access to various databases that can tell you a lot about a person. I ran a report on Jason that gave me not only a lot of personal information about him, but also the names, phone numbers, and addresses of possible relatives. But I didn't think about something, which was that the report included Jason's criminal history, which apparently no one knew anything about. This history didn't contain anything shocking or disturbing. One or two charges that suggested violence, yes, and apparently he did some real time, more than a year somewhere. But no murder, no sex crimes. I figured the guy was a musician his whole life. He probably had his share of bar fights back when, rocky relationships, booze or drugs or anything you might imagine from a life on the road as a musician. But his girlfriend, Laura, and some other friends were not so charitable. Laura was furious. She couldn't believe that a convict had been living with her. She started texting me, calling me, calling him all kinds of names, maligning him, speculating about his past beyond what his rap sheet showed. She told who knows how many of his friends. On a GoFundMe page I set up, someone, it had to have been one of her friends, commented that he was a demon. I ended up tracking down a distant relative and getting her to sign something, appointing me as a representative and then taking custody of Jason's body. I even conducted a service to which a handful of people showed up. Jason's ex-wife, the owner of a music store where he used to work, a couple others, and Laura, too. I feel nice that I did what I did by burying him, giving him the dignity of a burial and a send-off instead of anonymous cremation by Miami-Dade County. But I did something I haven't forgiven myself for. I maligned his good name. I sullied his reputation and his stature in the eyes of several people forever. Of those who knew him when I did, the memory of him could have sweetly lingered as the groovy, warm-hearted guitar player we knew him to be. Instead, for them, he's a criminal, a convict, a liar. It haunts me. I'm so sorry, and I haven't figured out yet what to do with it. I wish I could ask Jason's forgiveness, but how can I? How do you ask forgiveness from the dead? You know, with all this division in the Jewish world, reform and orthodox, conservative, reconstructionist, renewal, whatever, there are a few things that unite all Jews. And one of them is the music of the composer Shlomo Karlibach. You might not know that you know Karlibach's music, but if you've been to any kind of religious service, whether it's at a Hillel on a college campus, whether it's at some sort of concert at some Burning Man Jewish camp, whether it's just, you know, the Reform Temple on high holidays, you have heard some melody composed by Shlomo Karlibach. truly transcends all different groups. He's kind of everywhere. Well, it turns out that he led a life that, while giving a tremendous amount to the Jewish community, had some pretty worrisome aspects as well. And the aftermath of that life, the, the damage that he allegedly left in his wake, is the subject of this next piece. This story was narrated by associate producer Sara Fredman Ader. It's pretty amazing. Please have a listen. Neshama Karlibach? Who am I? It's my question right now. <laughs> Who am I? Um, I'm a singer. I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. I'm the daughter of a beautiful, confusing human being who's been gone for 25 years, which is, you know, longer than I knew him. And this is a gorgeous time in my life because I'm trying to figure out who I am, and I was given a very confusing, beautiful opportunity to sort of ask hard questions that I believe propelled me into the light. 
I'm Rabbi Angela Bokdahl, and I'm the senior rabbi at Central Synagogue in Manhattan. Central Synagogue is a large, historic, reform congregation, and we have a very diverse community of congregants. I became a song leader at Camp Swig in California when I was 14, and then I not only learned a huge body of Jewish music, but I also learned about kind of eras of Jewish songwriting, and I learned a huge wealth of Karlbach music along with a bunch of others when I was a song leader. Shlomo Karlibach was a famous rabbi, singer, composer, and spiritual leader. His compositions, like Ad Yerhu and Am Yisrael Chai, are sung in synagogues across the spectrum of observance. He was trained as an Orthodox rabbi, but ultimately found his home and his followers in the spiritual and mystical expressions of Judaism. He died in 1994, and his daughter Neshama essentially took over the family business, performing his music to crowds across the world. I started in 94, 30 days after my father passed away, and I started for many, many reasons. Mostly the great push to take his shows were that people wanted the deposits back, and people were demanding their shows and demanding, and I, I guess I understand. It was hard for me to internalize. I was 20 years old. The finances of our family were so in flux when he passed, um, and so I took the shows because we didn't have all that money to return. That was my first, okay, I'm in, you know, here's the work. They kind of put a sticky over the first name because they didn't want to reprint the tickets. So it was like the Karlibach, and then they had, you know, sometimes a, a very badly placed, <laughs> you know, half his name, half my name on the first name, which was really depressing to me. I had been singing with him for five years. I had never done my own show. I should say at the same time, I was training as an actress. Um, I was in school for theater. I was very comfortable on the stage. That was something that I had always wanted to do. I sang with my father because he made me happy. I didn't ever think his work would be my career or that, you know, the Jewish world would be my space. That's not what I had planned. I said, yes. Um, the first thing was the finance. The second thing was, of course, I have to do it. How can the world forget? And I cried through every show for four years, and I toured constantly. I started. Even as a teenager, Rabbi Bookdahl started hearing rumors about Shlomo. It started even when I was a song leader that there was some noise around the fact that when Karl Bach was around, girls should be a little bit aware. Um, I actually heard that. Now, I kind of dismissed that as a rumor because it was just a rumor, but the Lilith article came out. That was basically when I graduated college, so it was a pretty young age. It was before I'd gotten to rabbinic school or cantorial school. This article came out in which about at least a dozen women came forward. In 1998, Lilith magazine published an article making public the charges that had been whispered for years about Shlomo Karlibach. At the time, people sort of shrugged and kept using his music throughout the Jewish world, and it would take another 20 years before the community truly responded. The accusations, however, were quite serious, including inappropriate touching of teenagers and other acts of sexual assault. I'm Sarah Blusain. I am deputy editor of the nonprofit Type Investigations, and back in 1998, I was working for Lilith magazine and began reporting an article about Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. There had been for quite a while a whisper network around Rabbi Karlbach that had not come out in any formal way. The article was an attempt to document in careful terms, what women had been saying privately for quite a while, which is that he had been inappropriate in a variety of ways. We talked to as many women as we could at the time about his behavior toward them, but I think more importantly, we talked to members of the Jewish community who had known about this behavior and had passively responded or maybe had taken a position to not invite him to teach at their organizations, but not been more aggressive about trying to stop the behavior. I would say there were two main categories of complaints that we heard about. One was from women who 
recalled the behavior from when they had been much younger, like at summer camps or youth groups, where they claimed that he had gotten them alone in some youth setting and rubbed up against them and spoke Yiddish to them and, you know, had some sexual experience. Uh, the other category were women who had tended to be older at the time of the incidents, who said that he called them late at night and was, you know, speaking to them sexually and who knows what was going on on his end of the line. I think that there was something very problematic about the dynamic between him and the women that he was encountering that made them think that they shouldn't talk about it. Maybe it was they were honored to be in his presence. I heard that a lot. Maybe it was that they were ashamed that this happened to them, that I heard that a lot too. Maybe it was his reputation was so outsized that they didn't dare speak up. And maybe it was also some confusion about what these incidents meant or were they big enough to even mention? <laughs> so there, there was a lot of uh, caution, I would say, even among the women who decided to speak to us. And it wasn't really until that anniversary of his death where there was this outpouring of grief and people were, you know, just thinking so much about what a great man he had been and how much he had contributed to the Jewish community, which he did, that they wanted the other side to be heard. So I think... Why it took so long had to do with his huge reputation and the huge amount of love he had in the community and, quite frankly, the complicated dynamics between a rabbi and his, you know, parishioners or whatever you call them. Neshama's reaction? I didn't read it for many years, actually. I heard about it. I heard about it conceptually, and it took me many years to read. Um, and I think at the time... Ali just I just didn't understand why they had to what what was the process that made them want to do this to someone who's not here to answer. You know, that was that was my big confusion. And Rabbi Bookdahl? I read that article. I was shocked and horrified. Karl Bach had passed away, but I guess what I'm embarrassed to say is that it changed nothing of my behavior. I think it was a different time. And I felt like this is horrible to hear, but I kept singing Karl Bach music and I didn't feel particularly conflicted about it. I think that it would have been a very different situation if I had had any conversations with people who had actually been victims of his or who shared what their experience of not only him, but of what it meant to hear his music regularly. I believe that my father had two or maybe more than two phases in his life. The phase of, you know, my time, his last 20 years in the world. He was older. He had changed. He had, I believe he had many epiphanies in his life that took him to a place of wanting to help women and give women a lot of chance. He gave me a tremendous amount of chance. In front of me spoke all the time about how women were the ones who would herald the redemption. And it was when women's voices were heard, when women felt strong. I think I think that that, that would be like the moment of, of the great day, you know, that when women became stronger, we would we would be on our way. But yes, I, I hear that my father did things to hurt people, and I'm horrified, and um, I'm, I'm ashamed for him, and sad for us, and many feelings, many feelings. In late 2017, as the Me Too movement gained momentum, Rabbi Bookdahl decided she could no longer sing Shlomo Kalibach's music, at least not for the moment. The world was changing, and so was she. In January of 2018, she announced a one-year moratorium on Kalibach's music at Central Synagogue. She explains. What changed for me um, was both a, an awareness that came out of a growing adulthood and a recognition for the first time, not from just me too, but from my own experience of sexism as I rose into levels of leadership in which women are very few, that I experienced sexism in a different way. And then the Me Too movement, which to me just was earth shattering in terms of the sense of the pervasiveness of violence against women. I suddenly found my anger. I was never a particularly strongly identified or angry feminist. I just sort of felt like, why do we need to make such a big fuss about this? But I kind of like 
found my anger in this moment, not just anger, but my sense of moral outrage. I felt my responsibility in that moment was not to punish Shlomo Karlbach. I don't actually know for 100%, I'll never know what he did. It's not my place. He didn't injure me personally. And I didn't feel that my role was to make tshuva for him either. That's not my place to do it. So what I felt like what I, my responsibility as a Jewish leader was to say to the victims, I hear you. I will respond. And it's not just taking a one-year moratorium on his music, which we felt like was an appropriate ritualized year of mourning of some kind. What did Neshama make of Rabbi Bukdal and her decision? Yeah, I think that it's a really special thing that, that a woman like Angela, Cantor, Rabbi, Asian, female, all the things that she is. She breaks every possible boundary just by breathing, just by bring, being in this world. And I love the world that listens to Angela. I listen to Angela. <laughs> Angela is a, an influence and inspiration for me um, as a woman, as a human being. Um, and she was before this, and she will be always. She had made a speech that I heard about, and then I approached her saying, um, I just heard that you had spoken about this in your shul. And she was really sweet. Um, and we spoke quite a bit, yes. And I knew that this was their plan. And the fact that people heard her, I understand why. And I appreciate the hearing. I also appreciate that she wanted to do something right. She wanted to say something to the world and give, let women know that she was hearing them. And, and I understand her intention. And I understand where it came from. Though Rabbi Bookdahl never suggested that congregations follow her lead, they nevertheless were moved to act as well. She explains her vision and what other steps she took. But it was also a commitment to educate about this issue, to do a different job of educating our staff on sexual harassment, to do teachings around this from Jewish texts. I taught my board. We did conversations with our young professionals, with family services. So Part of the commitment was not just the year moratorium, but a greater sense of education. I know that the conversations were happening all over the place. I probably fielded a dozen calls from cantors and rabbis who said, we're thinking about doing this in our community. I know that this prompted a conversation at the URJ, the Reform Movement, and the American Conference of Cantors, which is the Reform Movement's cantor body. So all of them, it sparked conversations in lots of places, or maybe I didn't spark it, but it was in the air and it was happening in lots and lots of places. And because I had written about it publicly, many people came to me and said, will you talk about this or will you give us the text that you used? There's no question that I miss singing it over the course of the year and that certain melodies for the holidays were really missing. And we, and there aren't a lot of songs that can replace it. Like while we replaced it with some wonderful new music and new voices, which I appreciated, Karlbach is Jewish memory for the vast majority of our Jews. And so there's nothing that replaces it that has that same sense of like connecting you back to your time when you sat in synagogue or to your grandparents who sang these songs or to your time in Israel or your time in a Jewish camp. There's something about how ubiquitous his music is that is deeply connected to Jewish memory for people of many generations around the world. Neshama's life was caught up in the storm. The fallout on me was quite unfortunate. Um, and I'm still coming to terms with that. I stopped singing. I became part of that moratorium when people said, there's no Karlbach here, that includes me. And in fact, it falls on me because he's not here to hear. I was a single mom at the time, two kids, no work. Um, and people would say things like, it's not you, it's your name sorry, or we can't have a Karlibach here now, or yeah, the sisterhood is up in arms, and yeah, it can't work now. And then some people would actually not read the news, and they thought it was me. They thought that I was a predator. I only learned several months later when Nishama called me as a friend that, this, that these repercussions had impacted her deeply and personally in which this um, toxicity of her father's music had meant that people canceled concerts of hers and shows. And I was deeply upset that that was the impact that it would have. I didn't expect that and um, certainly didn't want her to have to uh, suffer for sins that were not her own. I was demolished, truly. I've had a lot of hard moments in my life. My father dying was pretty, was pretty rough. 
my divorce. I mean, like I've had, I've had my moments, you know, <laughs> like we all have our journeys. This was really, really tough because this was not only my career. My career is so much more than my income. My career is my, is my connection to God. It's my mission in the world. It's my soul's voice. When I don't sing, I feel sick. I actually feel sick. It causes me physical pain to not sing, to not be useful to wonder who I am, to question my own integrity, to walk through the world knowing that people see me in a certain way, internalizing him when I shouldn't be. You know, and I've been internalizing him for 25 years, so that's really easy. Holding on to him because I miss him and love him and not wanting to hold on to him because it's also time to let him go. So a lot of therapy, you know what I'm saying? A lot of therapy. At the start of 2019, the year-long moratorium ended, and Shlomo Karlibach's music returned to Central Synagogue and other communities around the Jewish world. Neshama, too, was hoping to return. I heard that she had brought the music back. So I reached out, and I asked if I could talk to her. You know, she had spoken about this being a year of education and learning, and I wanted to know, Frank, I'm really curious and wanting to know what she had learned in this time, what she had gained, what her community had gained. Um, and so we made an appointment, I went to see her, and it was, it was really, really powerful. I felt very blessed and I felt very scared. But that's sort of the feeling that has been mine this past while. I'm both blessed and open to all that I am becoming and seeing and feeling and scared to death. So how does Rabbi Bookdahl respond to people who think the moratorium should have been permanent? Uh, I would like to challenge you to find art that was created by someone who wasn't a flawed, challenging, complicated human being. I actually often think that people who uh, struggle with demons oftentimes are the ones who create the most powerful art. And I believe in kind of this Kabbalistic idea that there is a spark of divinity that's in every person, including the most deeply flawed, and that that spark is capable of incredible creation. That doesn't necessarily excuse behavior. And there are certainly times where I'm not willing to consume art that I know is actively supporting someone's bad behavior or enabling them or glorifying their name. There are reasons that I would decide that I would actually not play someone's music. But I think in general, we want to be very, very careful about what we decide we're completely censoring or wiping off of our map. This is all very hard to talk about. You know, it's not, I haven't found my way. This is, I think, the second interview I've given in all of this time. And I, I'm doing it willingly. I'm here willingly with my whole heart. And I hope that my, that my words, that my story help others just to feel a little bit more liberated, you know, because we're all a little bit stuck. You know, whether our family member has been outed or not, it's still something that we hold. We walk around with shame and pain. And I hope that my speaking out and my willingness to be present and vulnerable helps. But I must say, I'm, I am still going through so much of my process. It's, I hope that my words are clear. I, I think my prayer for all victims, it's not his specifically. You know, I, I just hope that we all find a way forward into a better place of healing, really. Because that's, that's too much pain for anyone to hold. And I, I wonder if this Me Too moment should not be more focused on the rehabilitation and the healing of people who have been hurt. I feel like it, to focus only on what he did all those years ago is to leave out the victim. It's actually almost in the reverse. There were a lot of people in the Karlibach world, which was my world at the time, it's no longer my world, who said at the time these women were liars. And the whole focus of the conversation after the Lilith piece was he's gone and they're liars and how do they do that? Now people are saying, he's gone, but look what he did. I think there's too much conversation about him. How are these people doing? How are the victims healing? How can we help them to set it down, um, move forward in their lives and find joy? On June 21st, 2019, Bookdahl invited Neshama to join her and Central Synagogue cantor Daniel Mutlu on the Bima for a Friday night service. It was just a Friday night service in which um, I shared some words of what it meant to 
um, invite her to be there. And I actually, not only did I want her to sing one of her new pieces that is, was her own, and she did that on her own, and it was beautiful, and she gave an introduction to that, but I wanted us to Davka, like, sing a Shlomo Karlbach song together. So once Angela spoke, I felt an incredible sense of joy and relief because I knew she was going to take care of me. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't even about her. You know, it's just that I'm fearful in general. But once she spoke, I felt better. Singing that song was actually very painful. I realized I, I hadn't sung his songs in a really long time. Um, and I was scared. I didn't, I, I was scared. Um, I didn't know what she, what she was going to say. I believe she has incredible class, you know, and I knew she would say the right thing. I was still anxious to hear what, she, what the whole evening, how it would come out. Um, and it's been hard. So all of those feelings. It sounds confusing because it is confusing. It's just a lot. So the song that, that we sang to Shir Ladonai, it's actually a song called Kiva Moed, which means the time has come. And it's, the message is so deep. It's, it was one of the songs that I ended my whole show with. It's like, this is the moment. This is our moment. The time has come. <laughs> you know, rejoice, reach out, go past yourself, get out of your own way. You know, it's one of those songs for me. And so, though our conversations were separate, we asked both women to sing for us the song that they had sung together on the bima that night in June. Shiru ladonai, shir chadash, shiru ladonai kol haaretz. Shiru ladonai, baruchu shemo, basru meyom leyom yeshuato. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or better yet, call us with the apologies you wished that you had made this holiday season. 914-570-4869. You need to wear and carry Unorthodox too. That should be your Shana Tova New Year's resolution, baby. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt so that you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and onesies because no baby should go without one in the year 5780. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader, editing assistant this week by Josh Hahn. Our artwork is by Esther Wordiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision this week by Paige Linsenberg, the student rabbi at Temple B'nai Israel in Amarillo, Texas. She was assisted in her rabbinic supervision by Larry the Mustache Dove Bachelier, the chaplain of Synagogue Temple B'nai Israel in Amarillo, Texas. We've recorded Argo Studios with whom we have re-upped for 5780. Shalom, friends.
Are we talking about ourselves right now? Yes. Oh, do we have anything to say? I have something yeah, to say. I have something okay. to say. Start with Stephanie. 